You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! how uh martin lawrence used to start his show on wzup any martin fans out there anyway welcome to the x-man holla at your boy dot coil i am not martin lawrence unfortunately this is episode seven of the x-man and it's uh it's it's holiday time you know or as uh, we in Trump's America, we can say Christmas now. I'm so happy. Didn't say Christmas for eight years. Now I can come out the closet. I'm uh, I'm not a religious person, but I do like Christmas. I like the lights. I hung up a Christmas tree, and I and I, and I enjoy it. And I don't I don't I don't need Jesus for that, guys. I'm sorry. Sorry for the Jesus lovers out there. I love you guys. You know I love I love Jesus too. Even though I don't I don't pray to him. I'm cool. The fact, you know, I like his beard, uh, robes seem real comfortable all the time. Water into wine. I'm cool. Who doesn't like a good miracle from time to time? Anyway, the the holiday season, you know, it's it's interesting. I've been, you know, you, your boy Doc's been in a little bit of a, I don't know, down in the dumps, a little slump, a little, little mini holiday or, or say a seasonal depression. And... But I don't think that's that's the worst thing. You know, sometimes you get down and you can it allows you to to look inside, you know, and I think that's OK. You know, to kind of just take a little take stock, say, hey, why, 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 why am I in a bad mood? Why am I upset? And you can you can do some work on yourself. And I think that's that's helpful. I think some of it has to do with uh, the climate. You know, I'll, I'll get up early. I don't actually I haven't been getting up early. I've been kind of stay, sleeping in, guys. I'm sorry, but uh, but I've been I've been getting up late and then working late. All right, I'm getting in at both ends. But you know, you get up, you look on the old Twitter there, and you hear about all the terrible things going on. You know, and, and it puts you in a way that's not great. So maybe sometimes, y'all, we got to turn off the the social medias. There's a lot of negativity out there you know you can focus on all that stuff or you can ignore it you know which i think i'm gonna do guys i'm done with reading and uh listening and i'm just gonna live in blissful everlasting ignorance it's gonna be glorious no probably not unfortunately real quick i just want to plug the 
upcoming Vegas Nerve West Coast tour. It's really a tour of Southern California, but uh, we finally have some dates. So uh, right now we have January 16th, which is a Monday uh, at Loaded in Hollywood. And that'll be featuring the band Scum Love and Fake Figures with uh, also featuring Travis from Atreyu. Uh, January 18th, which is the Wednesday, we'll be playing Skinnies in North Hollywood, opening for the rock band karaoke which would be awesome then january 19th uh we'll be playing blacklight district lounge in long beach california uh the 20th is actually an invite only show in orange county associated with nam so really not too much need in uh advertising that one and then also january 21st which is a saturday we'll be playing brick by brick in san diego and we'll be opening up for silver snakes and ages so this is our first first Vegas Nerve Tour, so please check it out. Um, and if you're in town for Nam, we're going to be playing a bunch that week, so come on out. We'd love to see you. So now I'm going to talk about this week's sponsor. It is a band from Japan called Death I Am, and although the singer is from the States, and I say that, guys, this is some fucking heavy shit. Uh, this song is called Calculating Fate, and it's from their self-titled album. Check it out.
that shit was dope. Especially that end part. I'm saying your boy's gonna open up a a circle pit up in up in my room up in here. That's that that that, that shit was dope, man. Yeah, so that was Death I Am uh, from their self titled album. Uh, the track is called Calculating Fate. And if you dig that, you can check them out. Their website is deathiam.com, and they're on Twitter at deathiam2. I really want to thank those guys for sponsoring the show. And if you also, if you would like your band or your product to sponsor the show, hit up Doc Coil on social media. I'm easy to find. You know, I'm not going to give you my email address because I don't trust you people. Going to be sending me viruses. You want to be hacking me like Podesta. You know, so you ain't going to hack me. Actually, no, seriously, please, please don't hack me, uh, guys. I, I would prefer that not to happen. I am a. I'm I'm as soft uh, digitally as I am in real life. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to get into squabbles. Anyway, let's get into our our guest coming up. We have Mr. Mike Gitter. This man is A&R, artist in repertoire. I think that's what it stands for. You know, you, you think all these years in, in the business, I would know. Um, yes, he has worked at Atlantic Records. He has worked at Roadrunner Records for quite some time. He was at Razor and Tie. Now he's at Century Media slash Another Century. This guy, if if you know heavy music, he is a, a bit of a legend, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Um, he's he's been there, has been part of the punk and hardcore and underground and independent music scenes, and has even really affected how our dirty little underground scene has penetrated into the mainstream. So I really want this show to start capturing and talking to people in the industry side of things and not just musicians and artists because I want to provide a platform to give people like me, musicians out here trying to make it some insider education on what happens you know, behind the scenes to, to make these great careers and the ones that last. And that's really what I'm interested in, not necessarily the the big flash in the pan that happens in a few minutes. So anyway, enjoy my talk with Mike Gitter. I want to welcome our guest, Mr. Mike Gitter, A&R extraordinaire. He is one of the, I guess, the big gets, the guys on my list that I wanted to get because some people think this is this show is just about band members mm-hmm. and it's not really about that it's about the creative world the prof- the professional creative world and I think people like you um, in a way the, the 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 world I come from the musicians and especially like people who haven't had the success and the access I have you know you're like the Wizard of Oz behind the the curtain they don't really know you know i maybe i know you don't see it that way but i, can, I completely don't see it that way well well of course you don't because <laughs> you're you but yeah I, like i always but i think a lot of musicians probably look at it like in wayne's world it's like mr big from big time records and or as what some people call the suits as if i've ever seen an a&r person or wearing, someone, wearing a suit yeah well at least in the metal world i don't I don't know. I mean, I've, I've seen some record company executives wearing fine suits. Fine suits, not even off the rack, like serious. Yeah, we're not talking like um, Nordstrom's you know, <laughs> discount Listen, house. I went to Nord- Nordstrom's, and it was in 
L.A. at the Grove, mm -hmm. which is very expensive, and it, it was not cheap there. No, no, no. True. But that's also by Beverly Hills, so keep True. that in mind. True. Um, no, but I think, I think it's interesting because everybody has their, you know, th I, I think what a lot of what you're talking about in your podcast in general anyway is we all have a, you know, we, everybody has a journey. And I think everyone has a very, you know, different journey. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting that you're covering are, are people who have longevity yeah. um, and who have hit, you know, who have sort of, you know, who've carved out their own, you know, swath through whether, whether it be culture, whether it be music, whether it be the arts. And, um, you know, and, and, I, and I think that for all of us, we're, re we're really no different. It's just, I think it's a lot about just taking, you know, about putting energy into motion. And, you know, you, you sometimes, you know, you, you do that as a younger person and you get, you know, it's, it's surprising where you, where you find yourself several years later. Well, I would say this program is an environment for the lifers. Yep. <laughs> the people that no matter what we kind of get involved in, somehow we get drawn back. And even if, and I know people, musicians and people who have been in, involved in the industry side who have completely left the business, but you know there's still a part of them that's still connected and will always be there. But speaking of, of lifers, okay. so you got your start doing music journalism? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, basically... Around, in, around what time? Well, in the most primitive and, and do-it-yourself manner. Um, in 1983... Well, actually, no. Around 1982, I caught the fanzine bug. And that was, that was a direct result of um, discovering... The, the cure to Loverboy and Sticks and Boston and all that music that we kind of love now, but we knew wasn't that cool back then. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I discovered punk rock. What, do you, what, do, you, yeah. what do you think is the thing that makes someone like you not only want to be a fan, mm -hmm. but then take part? Because there's something very like activist, activist about doing a DIY zine. What was it? Oh, I want to get free records. I want to get into shows or just, I just want to be closer. I think it's, it's, it's all of the above. It's, I think it's energy. I think, I think, you know, some, some kids put it into sports. Some people put it into music. Um, you know, some people put it into the, the stamp collecting club. <laughs> um, and for, for me, I realized that I probably wasn't, you know, going to be the best musician. Did you play um, at all? Did you yeah, I played. Um, I was in two different bands around 1986 through 88. Uh, they were both atrocious. <laughs> what did um, you play? What I I did I did the awful embarrassing thing. You sang. Yes. Did you sing or scream? Did you punk rock grunt? It was, it, well, <laughs> well, basically, basically, we the, the two bands were both failed attempts to sound a lot like music that was coming out of Washington D.C. at the time. Um, I think we were, both bands were sort of modeled on a band called Dag Nasty, okay. which, was, which was kind of a bridge between old hardcore or old first generation hardcore and something more melodic and something more, um, yeah, just some, something more, tune, was probably more tuneful and, and, and memorable. Mm -hmm. And um, 
there were bands who did it that were phenomenal at it. And it's everything from Dag Nasty themselves to, you know, a great New Jersey band that nobody remembers anymore called American Standard to... Even that one's over my head. No, oh, from Jersey. American Standard was a fantastic band. Um, so yeah, both, both the band, oh, one band was called Apology and we made a record for the Wishing Well label. And um, it was, you know, it's, it's got about one good song on it. And in terms of the musical direction of the band, it was, it was wildly divergent between all the, all the different members. I sort of wanted to go into more sort of hardcore or, or you know, what the time was called emo core uh, direction, not to be confused with Screamo or, or, or the, even the emo, emo. even the emo, even the post dashboard confessional emo of the day. Um, you know, it was, it was sort of a failed attempt at that. It sounded, it, it kind of sounded like an edgier, like an edgier local rock and roll band. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that was followed up by a band called Grin, which actually wasn't terrible. And I think if, if we lasted longer than a year, we would have probably ended up being a, pretty okay version of that kind of band um the good you know one of the good things about you know playing it playing in both those bands is we we did you know because i had i i knew people from you know putting out a fanzine and also booking and promoting shows in the boston area we got to play with some pretty cool bands um you know we got to play with the descendants we got to play with uh, fugazi we got to play with Verbal assault. We got to, you know we got to play with a lot of bands from Washington D.C. So you were involved. Um. Yeah. I mean. I mean. Because you because that's you know that's what you did. Like that's how you applied your applied your energy. So was it a situation kind of like a teacher, like those who can't do become journalists or become on the industry side, or not even can't do, but maybe not due to the level of your standards. Perhaps uh, those who can't rock with authority can write with authority, <laughs> right on, or 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 promote with authority. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, what one one thing I think that really interests interests me is going back and looking at some of the bands you've worked with. Mm-hmm. Is that your a common aesthetic from at least the Atlantic days to the Roadrunner days? is this affinity with the hardcore scene, with a punk scene? Is that, do you still feel like you are a hardcore person, a punk person? Is that generally what you identify with or is that putting it too simply being a grown man? Well, I, I think, I think you, you, are who, you are who you are and, and you have the background that you do and you, you, know, you, you learn life lessons in a certain context. And why, you know, why deny your own history? Mm-hmm. That said, have the courage, have the ambition um, to step outside your niche, to learn things, um, to progress, you know, to progress both as a person, um, you know, in your, in your chosen vocation, um, you know, and, you know, I, I love music and I would, I would hate to be stuck making you know working on one kind of record or working working with one kind of music exclusively well let's talk about your entry point so at sure. at atlantic you sign or work with bands like bad religion jawbox sam i am civ orange nine millimeter mm-hmm. now those are all bands that would i would say is part totally of the hardcore connected, scene punk totally scene. connected yeah so that was definitely your your entry point 
that was your reference. That was your world. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I got my. I mean, basically, basically, I was um, hired by Atlantic, basically, at, because I was a journalist. And again, you know, everything everything is a journey, and everything I think everything is is ultimately connected. And a lot of the things I was covering as a journalist were bands like Helmet, the Rollins Band, um, Hole, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the Beastie Boys. Um, that band that, that the guy I know who was the drummer in a band called Scream played in, who stayed on my floor many times, um, called Nirvana. Yeah, yeah, I haven't heard of them. Yeah, did and, they do something big? Yeah, well, I mean, they, they did, they did, they did a little something. So you were in that vibrant, it was, what what would soon to be known as grungy world or all new all the alternative music of the day. Well, or, I think it was the tipping point of independent music. Yeah. Um, to me, where you couldn't keep it underground after a certain point, it 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 entered the the mainstream world. Well, I think I think that. Never mind. Never mind. Was a tipping point that was bound to happen. Yeah. Uh, especially when you have you know upwards of twenty years of a you know demog- of sort of a very energized and passionate you know scene or demographic um, making a lot of great records, touching a lot of lives, and then you know you start having bands that are the more palatable or you know mainstream or just culture shaping um, bands, you know, from that world or loosely affiliated bands, like, like I said, like the Chili Peppers, like Jane's Addiction, um, like the Rollins Band, um, Sonic Youth being signed to major labels um, and starting to seep out into the culture. Then, you know, the year, really the year before um, Nirvana released Nevermind, you had, you had Lollapalooza. And Lollapalooza basically organized a whole demographic. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you, you you kind of have this burgeoning alternative nation, looking you know looking for its voice. 120 minutes. Totally. That that, that whole thing, and then you take the fashion component. Mm-hmm. You take the uh, was that reality bites and singles and all those. That was that was after. A little, that, was little after, bit after. that was after that. That was but, kind of a su- summary after the fact. Yeah. But but do you? That was an after. That was an aftershock of. Uh, so I'm I'm I was born in '80, so I was essentially coming of age mm-hmm. in in this era, and I and my v- viewpoint on, of it was obviously a little bit removed because I wasn't involved in the rock and punk and hardcore scene leading up to that. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I have really mixed emotions about nostalgia and kind of like back in the day thing. But but one thing I am really interested in are these periods in time of importance that I wasn't there for. And so I use people like you <laughs> to give me like a view, like what was it like, man? <laughs> well, I mean, n- n- nostalgia is perfectly fine. Is it? I it, don't know. Yeah, as, lo- as long as you recognize that, you know, that was what, you know, that was one shift and there's, you know, the sh- today's shift and there's tomorrow's shift and you can't control when you, when you were born, but it's, you know, it's, it's, all of these shifts and all of these um, eras really contribute to, to an ongoing language. Yeah. And, you know, a language of culture, a language of music. I guess my, my, my overall point with that was 
was there something special about that your particular entry point, especially how it relates to sure. the underground and all of a sudden it, you're at a major label where all, where all of a sudden you now you're empowered to give this underground scene a, a voice in the in in the mainstream was there something special about that that moment as far as being being there well you know, I, I mean what or that, we, that you can kind of give what was what was really important about it was sort of the the honesty and the visceral you know the visceral nature of the you know of of the music that i grew up on and you know i came i came into it or i, I you know i came into working at labels um in that sort of post nirvana gold rush when everyone was looking for "quote unquote" the next Nirvana, and you had resources. And, well, I, I just had history. I had a history with a lot of these people. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first band I, I ever signed was a band from Washington D.C. called Jawbox, and you know, brilliant band. Um, I was lucky enough to make two, I think, really great records with them. Um, but you know, I I was I knew that band because my friend Jay, who played bass in Government Issue. Became, was the singer and guitar player. Um, and I've always been a fan of everything he's done. When I was in a position to sort of cherry pick, you know, I, th I think some of the best of the underground, um, Jawbox really was one of those bands. And they were, they were also creating quite a, stir, you know, quite a stir on their own. They already had two records out in Discord, both of which were great, um, both of which showed, you know, tremendous playing and songwriting chops. And... I think, you know, the, the record that, the first record I did with them, which is a record called For Your Own Special Sweetheart, really was, was the record where it all, you know, where it all kind of came together. Their, their sound, you know, was, was at once inviting and strident. Um, and, you know, it was probably, probably not completely, you know, ready for, ready for the mainstream. Well, but, I think there's kind of a through line when I look at some of the bands you signed there. They all seem to have an accessibility, mm -hmm. but it doesn't, maybe with Bad Religion kind of being in their own kind of bad, atmosphere. Bad Religion was its, own, was its own beast. By the way, for people that are listening, we're at the Century Media offices right now. You know, we're surrounded, uh, I think we have like gold records. I think like we have a pound of cocaine over there, champagne, no, dancing no, ladies. They're on. doing, the business is I'm great. I'm from Boston, okay? <laughs> I'm from Boston and we don't do those, you know, we don't do those things there. There's no crime in Boston, everyone knows that. Correct. They don't, they don't party, they don't Correct. party. All right, I think we were, we were talking about bad religion and then being in their sure. own sphere well, yeah, I mean, kind of kind of separate but there but I think there was a a a niche sensibility to some of these bands and it was yeah. like I, like in a way I'm actually amazed that you were able to get bands like that the platform like what mm -hmm. was I guess now with having all your experience working at di labels at different levels in terms of uh independent major mm -hmm. what Reflecting now, what was it like working at a major label? Was it well, markedly different? It was, than it, was, the, it was a completely different time. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, we, we were in this, you know, this world that was sort of looking for, you know, looking for the next Nirvana. Yeah. You know, that, that. Is that what you felt though when you were signing a Jawbox or a Civ? Did you, were you thinking, all right, we're going to, we're trying to get that big I hit? I think it, 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 varies band from, it varies band from band. Um, the, the one thing, you know, I think we all, a lot of us naively assumed then was, 
okay, the doors have been kicked down. So you it's know, just where this, it's, it's you know, the, getting that to happen is a lot easier now. Let the, let the riffraff run, run rampant. But I also feel like back then you'd have a record sell two or 300,000 mm-hmm. copies and it was seen as a failure. Is no, that true? That was, is that, 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 wasn't, I, that am, wasn't quite true. I mean, you, well, you know better than you I know, do. You so. know, I think, I think like you would have, you would ban, bands, you know, that were, were highly touted, that got great press, um, but maybe you know maybe didn't connect with the mainstream. Yeah. But you know the the numbers the numbers that they were selling at that point were, you know, were twenty to forty thousand. Okay. And that and that was that was you know, especially for a sort of a, you know, a highly regarded a highly regarded signing, or something you know something that came from the underground like, you know the Melvins are the Melvins are a great example of that like the Melvins are are a band that, that have been around for a very long time and will be around for a very long time. They're definitely not, you know, for mainstream consumption. No, I would never. I would never assume that the Melvins right. sold more than like a hundred thousand copies of any record. I could be wrong. I, I think it was like fifty or fifty or sixty thousand yeah. records. And but this, you know, it's funny because at the same time, they sold enough. They sold enough records um, to val- you know, to validate the money that was being put into them. And they're they're a great artist magnet as well. I would say this: if you can sell ten thousand of anything, mm-hmm. right? 10,000 widgets, 10,000 doodads, then you're, it, it, that's enough to warrant some type of business structure around you. Yeah. I, I mean, if you, affect, if you affect that many people on a certain level, like you're probably doing something, you're probably starting to do something right. When you start affecting hundreds of thousands to millions of people, um, you've, 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 you've tapped in, you know, you, you've mystically tapped into a consciousness that, uh, very few people do. Yeah, listen, I can I can definitely attest to that to getting the point to where God forbid was selling mm-hmm. over that fifty thousand threshold, and you start especially when you start to see that penetrate in a global sense. So we went from doing that and then selling I think our Constitution of Treason sold like ten thousand records just in the UK, mm-hmm. and you see all of a sudden there's this the press steps up and these these all these different doors open. And I feel like we were just under that threshold of getting to the next level where all the other doors open but you see it in in kind of tangible real world connections and kind of in, in a way now that I have a credibility to this day or people will give me a certain amount of credit just based on kind of penetrating to whatever level how modest it was yeah I mean and God forbid was like a, a very you know a very legit um, credible band coming from a very legit credible background I mean, it's it's interesting how you guys came up alongside bands like Thursday, um, Nora, um, Dillinger, Dillinger, Candiria. Yep. Um, you know, so, and, and and you were sort of another, an, another sort of um, tributary off that off that river. Well, the funny thing is, if you look at it from a more regional s- standpoint. Hmm? what we were doing seemed like, oh, that's what all these bands were doing. But in New Jersey, no one was doing what we were doing, really. The only, the band that we pivoted off of was a band called For the Love Of. Mm-hmm. and But they were a more of a groovy, very dynamic, evil-sounding hardcore band in the vein of, like, Overcast or something like that. Yeah. But, you know, so anyway, I don't, you know, we're not here to talk about God Forbid. Okay. We're here to talk about Mike Gitter. Oh God. Oh, that's right. That's so. What happened with Warner? Where you ended, Warner? Atlantic. Uh, Atlantic. The other Warner. Uh, 
<laughs> what happened with Atlantic where that, that ended up, uh, you end up not working there? I mean, I think I had a good run there. I was there for five years. That is a good um, run. You know, had, had bands that were critical successes like Jawbox, you know, who went on to be a, like a fairly influential band. You know, you still, yeah. hear, you still hear the Deftones covering Savory. Um, you know, having, having had real success with Bad Religion. Course. Which was the second, you know, the second band I ever uh, signed slash work with, and with Bad Religion, I caught them at a point where the scene, you know, the scene that they sort of spear, you know, that they spearheaded and helped reinvent, um, was was exploding in its own right. Yeah. You know, you you had it, you had a tentpole record like Dookie, and that that kind that was sort of in a lot of ways that was like the next step from from Nevermind. Um, they took the mantle for sure. Yeah, they definitely took the mantle, and you know, Bad Bad Religion was an extremely important band in in you know the develop well really the development of both punk and alternative music. Um, when they you know when they put out a record called Suffer in 1987, that completely rejuvenated punk rock in Southern California. Um, it's a great record. Um, it has an energy and a depth to it that you know very few records around that point had, and you know the subsequent you know it was it got a little, it got a little bit of attention at first, um, but with subsequent records like you know No Control Generator, uh, Against the Grain, um, they really kind of like helped you know define and foster a sound, and inspire bands like Pennywise, uh, inspire The Offspring. Um, inspired no effects, all of whom became very important, you know, very important bands in their own right. Mm. And I was, you know, I was lucky enough to catch Bad Religion at a point where they were on, they were on their own independent label, Epitaph. Um, most of the, you know, I think the band, the band wanted to see, you know, see how, basically see how the other half lived. Um, they also want to take advantage of, of what a ma- what a major could do for them, and they si- you know they signed to Atlantic, and I think it was actually it was actually a pretty good you know at least for the for the first couple records, um, it was a really good relationship. The first record we um, Atlantic put out was a reissue of the, of the Recipe for Hate record, and you know I, I know we I know we ended up selling like you know. We, we ended we ended up adding adding to their numbers quite a bit, and you know we're able to we're able to sort of push them actually to places that they probably would have gone in in their, in their on their own right anyway. But you know when when they did Stranger Than Fiction, um, and you know had bona fide bona fide radio hits like Infected, like Bad Religion, uh, Green Day, Social Distortion, The Chili Peppers. We're all, you know, we're all great examples of, of bands who came from an underground, you know, the Beastie Boys even. Mm-hmm. We're all great examples of bands that came, came from an underground background that either wrote songs that struck a chord um, with a mainstream audience or, or, you know, had a vibe about them, which was then, you know, which then was sort of alchemized, alchemized into songs. Well, I would, I yeah. would, I would say that those bands are institutions and mm-hmm. and cer- certain bands once you reach a certain iconic status and sometimes like I think it goes a little bit just beyond the numbers of it but you know but they became 
but you know, they, they, they became institutions. Um, you know, what, I guess, I guess the question is like, what make what makes an institution? Ultimately it's, it's, abil- it's ability to sort of con- you know, connect on a, on a, whether it be an intellectual level or a primal level or an emotional level. Um, and it's, it's rare, you know, it's, it's totally rare that, that that happens. And, you know, those are, those are bands that did it. And there's some bands that, you know, do it from a, from a songwriting perspective. And that's where, you, that's where you get bands like the Stone Temple Pilots um, or Alice in Chains, who just wrote, you know, who were great bands, who had, who had a great, you know, had great sounds. Yeah. So, um, so I, I kind of want to pivot a little bit to your, your time at, at Roadrunner Records. Sure. Um, I think people, at least in my world, that's where we're most familiar with your work or where your name mm-hmm. became something synonymous with, especially a... Roadrunner, I think, in terms of label branding, mm-hmm. perhaps for a time had the strongest brand in in heavy music. Yeah, heavy music and ultimately hard rock. Yeah, and and I think there was there was just something, especially being in a in a signed band who was not on Roadrunner had and got to tour with a lot of Roadrunner bands, and being fans of of those bands. There was something kind. There was a mystique, I think, about that label from the outside looking in how, how did um how did you get involved with 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 roadrunner and you know what was your what was that like just kind of getting getting going there well again you know you you, you hang out in a, in a certain world whether you're a journalist or an anr person or just simply a fan and you meet other journalists and our persons and ultimately we're all fans anyway so what you know what happened was i had known monty connor for years and I had also know, you know, I like way, way before, you know, I had even, I, I had even worked at Atlantic, um, as a journal, you know, as a journalist, I remember going out to lunch with him and him handing me like, you know, Trey Pone and Paul cassettes, uh, early, early copies of schizophrenia, of sepultura schizophrenia or beneath the remains. Um, and, you know, just, just having, and, and as the years, years went by, we, you know, Monty and I developed an incredible mutual respect for each other. Uh, he's still one of my best, he's still one of my best friends. Um, I think truly a great record guy as well. And at the, t- at the time, about 1997, um, there was an A&R guy at Roadrunner named Howie Abrams, who now actually does a fantastic podcast called Merciless, and also has a publishing company called um, Lesser God's Books, and which is incidentally, uh, run run with the former owner of us uh, of Roadrunner, a guy named uh, a guy named Sace Wessels. Mm-hmm. Um, but Howie Howie was was leaving was leaving Roadrunner, and sort of heading off and heading off into the world of publishing. So I was I was out of Atlantic at the time, and I was looking for a gig, and Road you know Roadrunner was was one of the first places I want I wanted to go. I mean I loved the I loved the vibe of the label. I loved a lot of the, the bands that they had. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Do, so you're coming from one label and there was mm-hmm. a certain type of through line of the style of, of, of bands you were, you were signing as far as, from, from my perspective. Yeah. Now when you go to a new label, are they saying, hey, we sign these kinds of bands and we need you to sign these kinds of bands or was it a little more open to well, your, well, your, I, your taste? Well, I think over the five years that I was at Atlantic, one thing I learned how to do was make records. 
and you know le- learning how to you know hire the you know basically so I go, right, go through so, the demoing sorry. so this is yeah. the, so I think this is really interesting uh, to the people listening to this because you, I know you don't want to get into the all the the nitty gritty of what it is to be an A and R but what what does that mean to you making records as far as how you're involved with, with I, the band I, you, I you think, work with? I think you know make making quote unquote making records. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's it's about getting the best out of an artist mm-hmm. and creating you know the the best you know the best sort of listening experience for you know a fan. Now is that a songwriting thing? Like, will you weigh in and say tell a band, hey, I don't think this vibe is working or this types of songs or in terms of the critical mind or it's, it's all of the above it's it's really you know to, to me you're working with people you're working with talent you're working with, with with you know vision and desire um and it's really about it's really about getting the best out of someone um and some you know sometimes that that is on a very like like very specific songwriting end of things where you know you basically where let's say a band you know hands in a collection of songs that just aren't good you know yeah, and you'll tell them or yeah I, I mean you'll say hey you're not you're not ready let's say it's nowhere as near as good as the record that came before it uh, let's say it seems rushed let's say you know like they weren't completely focused on you know they're you know they weren't completely focused on making a great record they were focused on getting a record you know done in time for a tour are you do you find in your historically butting heads with bands over over issues like these? Um, yeah, hope you know. Hopefully, it's it's all in the interest of it's all in a common interest. Mm-hmm. Um, do you butt heads? Absolutely. Um, you know, again, we're, we're you're dealing with with ego, and you're dealing with artists. Of course. And you know, nobody nobody likes to be told like. That you know the the thing that the thing that you created is not like the greatest you know this is not the greatest song you've ever written in your life yeah nobody wants to hear that and it's all uh, subjective as well it's totally sub- you know it's totally subjective you know well you know you may not think this but five of my friends think this um, well five of your friends five of your friends are just giving you lip service um, and by the way I'm not always right yeah and. On, on many on many occasions, I've after list, after listening to something for you know a week or two weeks, I'm like, eh, you may have you may have a point there, or you may have cre- you may have created something that I didn't get at first. Um, you know, it's inter- it's interesting. One thing I always say is is you know one of the, one of the greatest things that a any 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 person in the music business, but particularly A and R people, uh, need to do is just listen. You know, yeah. I, I've always believed that listening is life, and the more time you spend with something, the more the more you sort of get into the you know the crux of it. Um, the more you understand it, the more the more you can often discover within a, within a piece of music. Yeah, and you know, and, and sometimes things are great, and sometimes things are not great. And I think your goal as an A and R person is to, you know really come come with a piece of music that is great that will affect you know many people and hopefully sell many records greetings from evergreen podcasts we're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you 
The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Well, the, one of the reasons why I'm really interested in these questions is, mm-hmm. with my experience, God forbid, was in a way left to our own devices in terms of creating our music uh, sometimes we would send demos but sometimes I don't think we even did a lot of demoing in the in the early years and the A&R side would I guess have a more of a hand in you know finding the artist to do the the artwork and kind of uh, just work on each each step of the project the only time we had really hands-on was uh Tom B the guy who signed us he signed Shadows Fall over here and he was really involved in the Constitution album like he actually came to the studio and is actually giving us notes on the mix and ideas mm-hmm. and just just really involved so in, in a way I'm I personally as an artist even though you do want to have that creative control I also think that there's I like having people invested in what you're doing and being saying, Hey, I want to take an active role in making this the best it can be. Like, for example, if we make a record and I'm, I'm not sure I'm so in it, I don't know what the single is. I want some feedback. Say, Hey, what do you guys think the single should be? And they just little things like that. Yeah. And I, and I think also, you know, you're look, any, anytime, anytime a band signs to a label, it's a partnership. And, you know that's something that's something that I think myself and, and a lot of the you know a lot of really good A and R people over the years uh, take that relationship and that partnership very seriously, um, and I think that you know you you, you want to yeah you, you, you know you're also you're also ultimately the person who knows the artist you know who should be knowing know the artist the best, um, know them artistically the best, and be able to properly convey their you know their vision and their ideas to your label um so i think i think you know and also anytime you sign a band sign a band you do it because you you love it you know you do it because you you love the music and it affects you on a, on some level 
and your your job your job ultimately is to um, convey you know to convey that to your label, and also you know being being an intense super fan. You know, ultimately A and R people A and R people um, in many in many case in many cases you know become like super fans of of the bands they're working with and get to know them intimately. Um, well, you would hope so. You would, you would hope that yeah. the people that sign you are are really invested. We always hear those horror stories of some bands signing to a major label and then half the label gets fired. So then they're, left, they're yeah. left with people there who are not passionate about what they do. And right. that's, and no, no artist wants to be in that scenario. And, and that's usually, that's usually when those situations go sideways An artist, you know, needs their, needs their rabbi, needs their team, um, needs, needs their people who are going to sort of, you know, guide, hopefully guide them to the promised land. And the next time I get a record deal, I'm like, I need a rabbi, guys. You need a rabbi, dude. <laughs> you need a rabbi. So, uh, so all right. So you're you're at Roadrunner now. You you worked with a lot of a lot of bands there, but I'm a lo- I'm more inter- interested in in the bands that you signed that were relatively small or unknown own mm-hmm. entities because obviously you signed Opeth, you signed Megadeth, Hatebreed, some. Bands that well, were pretty pretty well well established, but I'm I'm always more fascinated by the the origin story. So, which is always more. But at, the, at the same time, taking an established band that you're hopefully a super fan of, and you know pushing developing a relationship with them where either you know in their own right or because you've because you've become involved in, in their process. Um, you, you make a career defining record. Yeah. You know, I, I, I in, in many ways, uh, especially at Roadrunner, I definitely lucked out. Cradle of Filth's uh, Nymphetamine well, is, they, they, is a they, landmark record. They finally had yeah. good sounding records. They finally had a good sounding record and they also finally wrote great songs. Yeah. And, you know, regardless of whatever background, you know, whether it be thrash, metal, black metal, that band came from. Hey, don't be hating on Midian. I, I love, oh, I love Midian. But you know, Nephetamine was the record where everything just came together, um, you know, and and that was that was a, a case of like working very closely with the producer Rob Caggiano. Yeah, he I heard his he talked a lot about that on the Josta podcast mm-hmm. and and how he he got them to play in a room together and not just make like a computer record. I thought that was amazing. I just I love that approach. Yeah, he got the he got the best out of that band. Um, and he got, you know, he got them to realize like what they could be, yeah. you know, um, I, you know, so you, you have very involved situations like that. Then a band like Opeth just drops ghost reveries in your lap. Well, I mean, ghost reveries and watershed to me, in in a way it's, I feel like they had two peaks. Well, maybe, you know, they, you know what, here's the thing with Opeth. You, they're so good, it's kind of difficult to, to, to put a pin in any one high point because they're yeah, they so... Move from, they move from strength to strength. Yeah, it's so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to overstate that because I can imagine all the tweets of people, hey man, that ain't the best, you know, Blackwater Park's the best, or Still Life, or you, Damnation. You know how you, you know how you are an Opeth record? <laughs> you get hang out, back. You, you basically, you, you fly to Sweden... You got to fly to Sweden uh, a couple oh, times, shit. yeah. Fly to Sweden. Damn, I want to be know. an A&R guy. Go to Sweden. Well, at, at the t- at the time, you know, A&R budgets were bigger. There you go. Um, you know, you, you basically go to Sweden. You get on a train. You uh, go to a studio in, in a town called Orebro. 
Oh, I know that yep. with Mr. Jens Bogren. Yeah, with Jens Bogren. By the way, Jens Bogren mixed the last two God Forbid albums, mixed and mastered, did a great job. Yep. And yes, he did. And you, you know, you, you basically sit down, they play it back for you. You don't even know what to say because it's so damn good. You just start crying. Um, and you're just like, okay, cool. So I can put my name up. Like I get that little credit. Like I, I, I can, I like the microscopic, you know, A and R credit. Cool. All right, I'm in. Um, and you know, th- those, those records are just like acts of, you know, acts of providence in their own right. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even working with Megadeth, which to me was a great, so which, which, which records was, did you do? Uh, the two records I worked on with them were, um, United Abominations and Endgame and Endgame Two two of their, I think of the, the later records, those are the two best of, you know, up until the dystopia, which is fucking mm. awesome. But which those, is, those yeah. are. So, and I would United Abominations. I would probably I like probably a little more than Endgame, but I think you like Endgame more, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Endgame. You know, United Abominations. I think has some has some great songs, and I think that. Well, actually, you know, the the funny thing is there, there was a record before that, um, the Wait, System Has Failed. Yeah, also very which good. Is, which underrated. is underrated. Like the which is the underrated you know gem in, in in the Megadeth catalog. Yeah, but I think the the thing that and you you talked a little bit before about linking up bands with the right producers getting Andy Sneap involved yeah. I think was something that was lacking from the the 13 and the uh, what was the other the, the previous one I forget the the, the last world uh, was it? oh no super clutter super those two records there's such a sonic difference yeah I think and, and the, the, I just think Andy Sneap was the right guy for the right time he was he was Andy was the was the right guy who was enthused about being there who you know really one you know Dave Dave Mustaine is a genius in his own right. Um, that's in, that's indisputable. Um, I, I would have to agree with that. Yeah. And he you know he has he you know whether it be Max Norman or um, who else does he work? You know you know I think Johnny K did those other records. Yeah, working working with Megadeth was was really a. An exercise in getting getting the you know it goes it goes to the what I was saying before. It was an exercise in getting the best the best out of an artist, and really that art you know seeing that artist connect with why he's great. Yeah. And I think I think over the course of those two records especially, that happened. Um, and also you know and, and and part of you know what I do is also create an atmosphere for creative success, and. You know, bringing bringing Andy into the equation, um, a tr- you know a true fan, somebody who learned to play guitar, you know probably learned to play guitar, jamming to um, Rust in Peace and P Cells and well, all that. I was that. about to say yeah, probably more probably more peace probably more P Cells. cells yeah. Um, help, helping a, a you know a career artist make a career defining record, I think is is also an important part of things right now. It's like it's funny. I mean, I'm currently we're in the middle of a body count record. And you know, working working with Body Count, Ice T, the producer Will Putney, you know, at this time, you know, at this time and place in the band's you know growth and development, and at this time and place in just the world itself, you know, they're they're on the verge of making their best record, um, and to me, that's enormously gratifying. Yeah, and I and me being you, you know, Mike actually brought me into the fold to help 
uh, contribute a song mm -hmm. to the Body Count record, and I know there's some other songwriters, some other people, and I think that year, and I think when, you know, I, I guess with a with a band like that, you get to have more of an active role in in making the record. Is that correct? Well, I think you know, to, to me, the the best, you know, some of the greatest artists are probably some of the most open and generous. Yeah. Um, there, you know, some of the greatest artists are the ones that say, you know, let's, you know, show me an idea. Let's collaborate on this. Let's, 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 let's grow, let's grow together. And, you know, what I, what I found, you know, in terms of walking into a body count record was, you know, I think, I think that ice and the band, you know, wanted some input from the community. You know, I think they wanted people to join them, join them in their journey. And, you know, it, it, it so happens that it was it, that it's happened at a, at very, at a very extreme, you know, time for this country. Yeah. And I think that that record, you know, it's not Rage Against the Machine record, but that echoes across this record. Well, he's someone, and I, I was talking about this someone the other day. He is someone not only that has a place as a musician, has a place as a an actor and a celebrity, but... He's one of the people whose voice matters historically. Well, and, I was about to and, say, in, yeah. and, in, and in pop culture, like like I said, if they do a documentary about the LA riots, there's going to be a part of that where Ice T has a role in that, and his and his voice carries weight in a way that, like I said, it is it is part of it is a, there's a historical context mm -hmm. and there is also a, a pop culture yeah. um, a component that is unique, really unique. There's not very many people. Uh, there's 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 no. I mean, honestly, there there's very few artists like like him. Um, and you know, like, like you were just saying, his his is a voice. I was going to say voice of a generation, but I think he's, you know, it's <laughs> not so, of a generation. It's not so much the, it's you know it's it's. It's more, but it spans more than a generation. It's, it's a voice. Of it's a voice of shaped culture. No, I actually was really interested in some of the the other bands. So I'm gonna go to some bands. You sure. tell you tell me whether you sign them or not. Glassjaw. Yes. El Nino. Yes. Kill Switch Engage. Yes. Trivium. No, but I was involved in their signing and Koei and Aringa. So there are situations yeah. at Roadrunner where multiple people will be involved in terms of working with a band or signing a band. Well, I mean, Monty and I were very close. You yeah. know, Monty, Mon like I said, Monty Connor is one of my best friends. And he was, you know, he was very busy at the time. He was, you know, he was the head of A&R at, at the label. So on many, you know, on many projects, he and I would work together. Yeah. And it was, it was you know, it was, it was a good way of sort of pooling our individual talents and outlooks. And, and it was just fun. You know, it, again, working with your friends. Um, so, no, so the thing that really fascinates the, me, though, about because as as a my musical taste, this kind of streak of bands or that or that label definitely is more aligned with my my taste. So mm -hmm. obviously, I'm gonna have a more of a of a connection to that. But I I'm I was just always fascinated with people that can see a band in its raw state where they're not, you know, Glassjaw became a great band. But by my estimation, they did not start as a great band. They were very rough around the edges. And I remember playing them. God forbid did a show. It was Converge, Glassjaw, when they were still on their EP, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang yep. record, Buried Alive. God forbid we played in Queens. 
And I remember like, and I think they had already signed the glass, the the glass job. They had already signed the Roadrunner deal, but obviously the record wasn't done. So they were, I don't think they were even really playing those songs very rough around the edges, but it was always amazing to me though, for someone to be able to have that vision of like, I can kind of see the greatness in this rough state. And that, and that's why it's always more fascinating to me of, of taking the band from ground zero as opposed to more established. To me, to me, the common denominator in, in most of the music, in probably like 98.5% of the music I like, is there, there's a visceral and human element to it. And Glassjaw, you know, Glassjaw conveyed that, uh, in, you know, in spades. Um, they, you know, there are great play- there's some great players in that band. Uh, you know, Daryl Palumbo, you know, was coming from, from such a place of honesty and so wanted to convey, you know, what was in his head, heart, and guts, that what Glassjaw was doing was undeniable. You yeah. know, the thing I think that was interesting about Glassjaw was, to a certain extent, they were doing, they, they were they were making music that was almost without context. Um, you know, and, and I think that was an issue. That was an issue that. What do you What do you mean by without well, context? Without context, because at the time, what was Glassjaw? You know. Like, well, I th- well, I think in in many sense they are the classic definition of a post-hardcore band, where they were in a band called Sons of Abraham, uh-huh, where of most course. of the guys. There's even a song on the first or the first Roadrunner, uh, "Everything You Want to Know About Silence," that was it is it's from the Sons of Abraham record, and sure. they, essentially they just had Daryl write new lyrics and write new vocals on on top of it. So there there is. A definitive connection with with that world. They were the perfect. In, in some ways, they were, they were like the you know this great combination of New York hardcore, um, you know Washington D.C. post hardcore, and just their their own kind of ambition and madness. Well, one thing I realized after the fact yeah. that because I didn't have the musical depth at the time was that how much Daryl was influenced by H.R. from Bad Brains. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there, there's that there's that there. He's he's also very you know extremely influenced by Elvis Costello. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, he he again a true music fan who you know let let his influences seep in and create something you know create something that was like new and start you know began a conversation that eventually spoke to a to millions of of kids. Yeah. Well, to me that that's the. In a, in a way, for me, because I was also in that scene from the ground floor, because we were friends with them and got to be mm-hmm. that we, me and my brother went to the mixing and got to you know because Steve Evitz was mixing right. with Ross Robinson, so we got to hear stuff before it came out. So I was really kind of a fly on the wall while that stuff was developing. But the most interesting about it was, and a lot of people don't realize this now, is that it didn't really hit right away. That was one of those bands where they almost hit a wall. And then the that record built a following in between. It was like that a, that whole scene blew up almost in between the two records. That's a I mean that's a classic case of a record that like just was so good it found its own audience. Yeah, and it's interesting because I mean when when the record came into Roadrunner, the you know the general the general reaction from some of the people running the label was this is extremely good. We don't know exactly what to do with it, and the only band that we've actually we can actually reference to it is Vision of Disorder. 
Well, Deftones, I think. And yeah, and 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 and, and Deftones as well. Because um, it wasn't nearly. I don't think you. Vision Disorder as, was much heavier. Yeah, it wasn't as frenetic or as heavy as, as as VOD, but a lot of the same sort of DNA was there. Of course. Um, the Long Island connection. Yeah, long, exactly. And I think that you know people didn't. I, I think I think people didn't know how to market it. What do you, what do you do with this? You know, because yeah. it, it's again, it's its own beast. Um, and also, I think you know, truth truth be told, those are the bands that shape culture. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where you get the Rage Against the Machines and Nine Inch Nails and, you know, Skrillex, yeah. um, you know, Refused, Metallica, you know, the, 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 bands, the bands that are sort of the biggest, like, that are sort of the biggest quote-unquote what the fucks, I think in many ways are, are, can be some of the most important bands. Yeah. Well, I think with them, they're just, they were ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. And... Th- not, not only they're ahead of their time, but they're also, they did something that that resonated in a way where you listen to the records now and it doesn't feel dated. It actually feels very, still vibrant. And that's the thing you can't define in the moment, you know? Um, sorry, so... And, kept, there's, and there's a lot of bands that probably owe them a lot of uh, oh yeah. debt and probably maybe even some royalties. Did the, did the used rip them off? I, I don't know. I would say, or, they, no. or is it like, was it parallel thinking? I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say it was parallel thinking, but it, it was, it was, it was continuing the conversation. Okay. You know, it was, it was, here's this really, you know, galvanizing record, everything you ever want to know about silence. Um, and it, it, it really seeped into the conversation for many bands. The used is a great example of that. Finch was another great example of that. So um, and now let live, I think is probably the biggest yeah. thing you could connect to it. And, 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 but, but the, the thing it's, the thing that's great about, you know, that conversation was everybody added, added their own spice to it. Well, the used, I, I have to say, and I think it's diff, objectively hard to say that the used was definitely doing something that was much more palatable and wrote more, I'd say directly tuneful songs. Like yeah. there wasn't, you didn't, there wasn't, you didn't have to do much work. Glassjaw's agenda was never was never let's you know let, let's let's appeal to everybody. Yeah. Their their agenda was let's like get get this bile that's in our in our guts out musically, um, and you know th- that I think that influenced people who were you know who were ultimately probably better songwriters or more commercially commercially minded songwriters. Um, and that's you know that's where you get a used record going you know gold. Um, I'm not sure has I'm wondering if that, I'm trying to remember if that. I'm record, sure they have a platinum record. I'm, I'm sure there's a platinum record there as well. Uh, Finch going gold. Um, but what's in, you know what's interesting is. And Glassjaw never me, went gold. Yeah, but you know what? Give me give worship me, and tribute never went gold. Uh no, it didn't. That's um, amazing. To but me. you know what? Give me the, give me those records now, and I and I still get that same like. That same charge, you know. Give me those glass jar records now, and I still get that that charge out of them. And I think you know that's that, that again. That's why I'm kind of bummed they they stopped working with Ross because I think he he captured he was able to kind of capture something and they were because they put out a couple of EPs since then are a little more a little too lo-fi for my mm-hmm. tastes. Um, but but yeah, they're they're they definitely they hit. You know, sometimes it just works. I mean, look. Also, also, you know, it's where the band is at the time. It's where the artist is at the time, and also, it's just, you know, 
Ross Robinson was somebody who was able to capture their truth. Yeah. You know, and, and ma- capture their truth and really magnify their truth. Yeah. So, all right. So let's let's move on to another band, Killswitch Engage. Did you were you did you envision the kind of global success and impact that that band would have? No, I just I just thought that um, their early demos and the first Ferret record, or you know, just became my, some of my favorite music I was hearing at the time. You know, Killswitch Engage was was really a combination of the tunefulness and technique of a band like Carcass. Um, the stomp of, of the Cro-Mags and the earnesty of the earnesty and spiritual quest of emotional hardcore, you know, and, and, and that, I shouldn't even say emotional hardcore because well, that 98, 99% of that music is extremely emotional. Yeah. Well, I think they might be the most, I think what they did. And the thing is I, Mike D sent, me and my brother, mm-hmm. the demo, the the demo. That, it was undeniable. It, well, you know, when we heard it, it actually, and by the demo, so for people listening to this, this would be the demo that came out before Alive or Just Breathing, and it had uh, Numbered Days, um, Fixation on the Darkness, and then the title track was on, was on the demo. And it had a very similar production to the album, which was leaps and bounds above the, 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 the self-titled debut, which a lot of people probably don't even know about, about yeah. the record that came out before, before that on Ferret Records. I mean, when I, heard, when I heard Temple from the Within, it was, it was such a combination of just emotion, uh, intensity, and melody. It was really, it was really the blueprint, blueprint for, you know, and, and the kernel of, or the seed of, of what Killswitch Engage uh, grew into, but it was the most just essential, you know, to me it was one of the most essential pieces of music I was hearing at the time because yeah. it was just like, whoa, there's, there's, you know, this is gripping. This yeah. is gripping. This is. Well, well what I was going to say was we heard the demo and in a way, and it was after Determination but before mm-hmm. Gone Forever. And it was the, we were already thinking in a certain, what we want our next record to be and we heard it in a way we felt like we got kicked off our corner and they, but, and in a way where we are like, this is it. Like, this is the next thing. And we have to kind of figure out what we're going to do because it's going to be so undeniable when this comes out that it's going to change everything. And I still think today, if you look at what happened after that, they are probably the most copied metal band in terms of, because they laid out a formula of, all right, here's how the verse sounds. This is the kind of riffing you have. This is the kind of grooves. Here's how kind of production, you know, the, you know, everything and the scream here, singing here. It was very easy to see what they did. And, and it was the, the copycats was insane. Even if it, 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 it affected us even. Well, you know, the, I think the bottom line with Killswitch Engage is they wrote the best songs. Yeah. You know, and, and, and one, th- one thing that's kind of undeniable is whoever writes the best songs is going to win. <laughs> Um, th- Write a, that there, down, everyone. There's a reason. Well, there's a reason why you know. It's true. Iron Maiden is a global is a global you know juggernaut. There's a reason why Metallica, you know, is yeah. is is, is un, even even on records you don't like, you know. So there's there, there's stuff on those records that's undeniable. Some people just have it. Yeah, they have it. You know, and and and, and some combinations of people have it as well. Whether it's Hetfield Ulrich or you know, 
Mike D and Mike D and Adam Duckwitz. You know, there, there's just there's combinations that just produce you know that 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 you know change the course of a genre. Yeah. No, I think it's it, it's it's amazing, and I think just when I think about you, knowing you and these records you've worked on, these bands, like I said, you got in on the ground floor, and it, to me, it's a testament to you being able to see something that perhaps because I know I think Central Media wanted to sign Killswitch. I think mm-hmm. Tom B told me that that yeah, I think he wanted to sign the band, and maybe there was an offer out, but obviously there was. Um, you know, so I think that's just a testament to your legacy and you know and, and you know or i don't know if you think about it that way yeah so. I, I you know if 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 i was if i was to get that highfalutin and and and, and, and start my legacy uh-huh. yeah start fancying myself <laughs> as some sort of seer um i'd be totally fucked yeah you know it's really like do you so what but but, do, but it, yeah but it is a skill there is there is a, a skill in any something you don't think that it's that's instinctual it's yeah. it's does it hit you in your guts you know does it does does this song you know just you know soar um now do you have do sometimes you have a band where you're like all right i'm feeling that thing but i'm just not sure i don't know if i can put because at the end of the day you're accountable if something doesn't work it comes like there is a clear kind of score sheet of the, you know, some people, I can sit there and say, I think that band's great. I think this, but I'm not the one that has put my reputation on the line. Yeah, you know what? I mean, look, you, you, and I think, I think times, you know, times are becoming more stringent. And I think that you have to be a lot more careful these days in terms of how you're spending money. But at the same time, you also have to kind of go, you know, within reason, go with your gut. So it's, it, is still, it is still a gut calculation, not a... a all right, I think I'm. This band will sell X, Y based on this and some some. I mean, one you can you can be sitting in a room, you know, with a thousand people going nuts over a local band, and go, hmm, they're 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 you know they're affecting this local audience in a way. So even if it doesn't necessarily speak to your personal taste, you're kind of just recognizing something that is just happening, and you have to be attuned to it. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, you know. Obviously, obviously, the band has to be legit, and it has to be something. And the music has to be great. Yeah, it's not just they're handing out Kool Aid and everything. Co- <laughs> correct. Um, but at the same time, yeah, you, you know, if if you see that kind of reaction, that's probably worth pursuing. Yeah. At the same time, if a piece if a piece of music just you know strikes you in your gut, and you know the songs are great, and you know there's something to develop there, um. There's a there's a reason to get involved. Yeah, and you know things like you know projects like that sometimes are developmental and sometimes never get beyond the demo stage, and sometimes they make you know absolutely incredible successful records. Yeah, so you the I don't know if I call it the the demise of Roadrunner Records, but certainly the the transition where Roadrunner mm-hmm. was bought by Warner. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Are you are you allowed to talk about any of that? Do you are you okay with talking about how and ask, that stuff? Um, ask me some questions and I'll tell you. Okay, I'll, I'll either say like. Um, so, was it, it was that situation where they were acquired? Do you know the the thought process behind re- getting rid of a lot of the original Roadrunner staff? No. No, so it, it wasn't like a situation where they explained well, certain things to you, or 
Or is it just something you don't want to elaborate on? I won't elaborate. Okay. Well, I will, well, I will say, Roadrunner was acquired by Warner's, um, you know, largely on the strength of its brand, of its culture, and the success, you know, the success of Slipknot. You know, a lot, a lot, I think a lot of majors were, were looking, at, looking at that band going, ooh, we want that. And, um, but I, to me, there's something beyond that. And I think what is unique to Roadrunner was a consistency and a, to me, there was like a Roadrunner standard. Like, well, all right, yeah, all right, like, yeah. this is a Roadrunner band. Like, and all right, we're going to have Sepultura and they're mm-hmm. going to do something culturally viable. We're going to have Fear Factory come on. They're going to do something that's never existed and it's going to have a certain sound and it's going to speak to a certain crowd to the point where I th- feel like there was a certain era where, where Roadrunner put something out, there were people who would buy it, especially in Europe, mm. almost sight unseen, because they were like, this brand means something, and they've given me Burn My Eyes, and they've given me, um, you know, Roots, and Alive or Just Breathing, and Ascendancy, and I know, you know, and obviously Slipknot and stuff like that. Um, and to me, them having that kind of exodus of people that work there and the infrastructure some like now i don't know if the label carries that same thing even though they've signed some really cool bands you know they've kind of almost gone back to the hardcore roots lately signing uh was it turnstile turnstile code orange code orange yeah they've you know they've gone even even um king 810 is pretty gritty and pretty and, and and it's not like oh we're trying to sign some and, and, and looking you're looking at it as an outsider i think that you know there's an, there's a definite interest and agenda um, from you know from Warner's on high mm-hmm. to maintain that brand and yeah. and to keep it to keep it viable, even if you know probably I mean, but but I wouldn't I wouldn't say and like I said this is no disrespect yeah. to anyone anyone over there I know Dave Rath awesome guy yeah great guy um, great record and guy. I think there are signing cool bands but but I wouldn't say I've heard I've heard a record and be like oh that's the next. That's going to mean what, what Roots is going to well, mean. Think, That's going to mean what Demanufacture means. That's going to mean what Iowa means. Yeah, and I, and I think I think the you know what is what the reason for that was what were two people, Monty Connor, a pure fan who ultimately learned you know who ultimately learned the music business, and Case Wessels, who you know pushed us. You know, to, who to, now? Who who is Case? Case, uh, sorry. Case is the was the, uh, was the owner of the label, and you know he was he was a, you know I, I think he's probably God he's probably now, late seventies early eighties, um, he was a guy who has you know been in the Dutch um, music business for years, who was there, who was there sort of at the you know, at the birth of heavy rock, um, who I think worked you know worked early records from bands like Blue Cheer and Deep Purple, um, and. Who really, you know, who really pushed us for for great for great bands with original visions, and 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 you know, often larger than life personalities, with great songs. So he he had a a big hand in in creatively what ended up being that brand. Yeah, I mean, he was he was the owner, and he, I mean, he was you know, even until the later the later years to the triviums and, and yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, because it was it was all about like how does you know I think in his mind. He wanted us to bring him bands that sort of broke the mold, that had personalities that could you know could carry that music. Um, further, you know, I mean, I mean, consider consider the cast of characters that came out of Roadrunner. Um, everything from Peter Steele 
to Dino Cazares, Max Cavalera, Rob Flynn, Daryl Palumbo, um, yeah, Alan Duckowitz, you know, the, 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 like the, Matt Heafy. Like these are, these are all like fairly dynamic and extremely talented people. Yeah. And, or, you know, King Diamond. You know, if, 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 you, really, if you really want to go into the history of Roadrunner. Um, Chuck Schuldner. Oh, yeah. That was combat. Roadrunner didn't put out any death records. Uh, they pro- at least in a, in a they probably licensed. See some of the death catalog. But I'm that, get, that I'm was a, that was combat. A, I'm gonna get eviscerated on the internet. No, you're not. <laughs> yeah. we, we, we can we can only retain so much knowledge. Listen, I, I, have um, to, I have to just cheat on Google and use use all that stuff. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, but at the same time, at the same time, like. You know, you, you had the you had these like just outsized characters making making great music, um, and you know, I mean, I, I think it was Case who who all you know who always had you know a, a big vision for what he wanted to do, um, bumping into Monty, who was who was just a true fan, yeah. who was also part of a developing scene and and knew it you know knew it intimately. Well, so your tenure at Roadrunner ends, and this is... It's 12 years. 12 years, that's... Which, which is an amazing run at any, well, any job. Well, it's, I, I think being any, in any career endeavor for that period of time, especially something like that, that was so definitive, um, what this show is really about is kind of those in-between times. Mm-hmm. And what, what's, what really interests me is... You're done at Roadrunner. Was that like a soul searching period, or like figuring out like what was what was going through your mind? Is like what what's next? Well, again, that's that's the answer. What's next? What do I do next? How do I you know continue doing what I what I love what I love to wake up every every day doing? Mm-hmm. Um, was there know, ever a thought to like? All right, I'm done with music, or it's, you were definitely. Yours. How can you? How can you be? You know, it's it's like. <laughs> well, we know people that have. That yeah, have yeah, and and you know, it's it's like they say, you know, music. You don't choose music. Mu- music music chooses you. Um, but you went to Century Media right away after that, right? Um, yeah, I w- I probably went to Century Media. Initially, um, yeah, probably a good like three months a- three months after that. So you don't you don't stay out of work long. I think this man. Is in high demand. I would, I, you know, I mean, that's that. That's for other people to say. Um, I'm, listen, I'm just putting together. Like you were here for a little bit, the people snatch you up. You don't, you don't stay. I, I, th- I think, I think I have had long. I, I think I've had longevity for for a number of reasons. Um, I think that you know, for one, I kind of know how to make a record, yeah. which which is probably not as you know as in in, in Many ways, not as common a skill as it once was. Well, now you, I think you have situations now where, or from what I've heard, where you have all these baby bands that get signed, and sometimes the labels aren't giving them virtually anything to to record with. So there's like, hey, go do your thing, make a record, however you got to do it, get some uh, duct tape and. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> so, what? As, as, here's the thing: as an AR person, to me, even even when you have a small budget. It's like how do we how do we make the best possible record, you know, on on fumes? 
You know yeah. what I mean? How do we how do we take the lint that's in our pocket and and you know create a, create a record that, that you know hopefully a lot of people that will excite a lot of people and begin a career. Um, well, but, I guess I guess what I'm saying is today we have a lot more people who musicians who are saying, all right, we don't have the money, so we have to become we have to become producers. Sure. We have to learn sure. the craft, which I think is great. I think uh, self independence is and not having to rely but i do think that idea of the producer's role and being able to god forbid getting to work with a steve evitz mm -hmm. on our first record in a way is to me the reason why we have a career well, always having i think it's important to always have that outside voice i think you know it being you know four individuals who've known each other since childhood who love each other and hate each other and get on each other's nerves, but you know, still want to hang out and still want you know creatively move forward. I think you sometimes need that other, that voice or referee. Yeah, but that's my point. Is of, I don't know if yeah. that happens as much anymore because I mean, yes, people are recording on their own and they don't. I think there's a, for example, like Code Orange. Yeah. To me, without a Kurt Ballou, mm -hmm. putting that. What they do, create, yeah, put, cre like creating there, the landscape. There's a prism to which we're hearing that, like in in a way where I'd say hardcore records today sound great, and that that used to be a rare thing. Mm -hmm. You know, when you'd hear a, a progression through unlearning, or you hear leeway, you know, you hear that that Normandy production. It was like, whoa, that's that right. was almost a sign that the band was official and they were legit. Um, but I just, you know. Because people are doing so much re recording on their own, I, and listen, I think some people do great oh, productions I, I, on their I, I own. I think I think you know we we we're, we're kind of at a point where just because you have the technology to do it or you have you have the means to do something to, to you know create doesn't mean you're going to be awesome at it. Yeah, and I think you know to me one of the one of the things I think that's diluted you know what what we do is just there's too much. You know, just, you know, too much of there's, everything. There's, there's too much of everything. You know, it, it's it's like you have to, in some ways you have to sort of wade through, you know, I think a tower of Babel, um, to, you know, you know to to isolate and identify stuff that's great. I've definitely this year in particular because I was writing for VH1 last year, so I had an impetus to actually listen to new music. Like in a way, I was like you were I. Listening to new music was part of my job, mm -hmm. and I have been writing that for them this year. So there's been almost arm's length as far as finding new music, and it's felt, to be honest, like work to to have to wait. Like I felt like I wasn't listening to new music because I wanted to. I was listening to new music because I felt like I was supposed to. Well, and yeah, and it's and it was like there's a fatigue about it. Well, for I, me again, again, the, the, you know, because there, there's so much music. Which you know, in a, in a way, I think is great. Like I think I think what home home production and what the what the internet has done is effectively put a guitar in everybody's hands. Um, now, should everybody have a guitar in their hands? Mm, probably not. But the cream, you know, the you know the, the the cream rises to the top, and you know some some great like great things can. Some you know great music. Great, there's always going to be great music. There's always going to be inspired individuals. There's always going to be like a furthering of the dialogue, um, in the conversation, 
of 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 whether it be hard rock, metal, pop, EDM, you know, whatever whatever the whatever the the, the genre or subgenre is, um, the one of the I think one of the great things about now is that we we li- we live in this we live in this era where there's a much broad there's a much broader vocabulary to be spoken than ever. Yeah. Well, kind of getting back to you, to your story a little bit. So you went from CM to Razor and Tie yeah. for a little bit and now back to CM. And I, I dabbled. I also dabbled in management. In management. You've been, you've, you've worn, worn the other, the other hat. So as a, as a real X-Man, you've, <laughs> you've, you've been there and back again by uh, Bilbo Baggins. No, by, by Mike Gitter. And, um, and I and I, I'd say the through line, as far as like I said, from the outside looking in, from Razor and Tie, I guess now to Century Media and another Century, which is the more rock branded uh, new new version of the label, you've been kind of been living more in that melodic commercial rock world. Is, think, that, is that is that a correct? I, I, I think is that it, fair to say? I think over over the past few years, um, I've I've learned you know I've made a greater variety of records. Yeah, and I've worked with with a number of different different artists and. You know, I've I've always liked a lot of music. Well, I don't want to I don't want to keep you too much. I really appreciate you. No, you're not you 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 doing this. Um, I just want to ask one more question. Sure. In this this current environment where if just too, like you said, too many music, too much music, so much going on, and it's equally great and it's equally bad. If because there's so many musicians that that listen to this, and that's really what who I'm I'm really speaking to is I, I want there to be a an educational component to this mm-hmm. show. Is there mistakes you see or things that you look for that you could tell people that might listen to this that or say maybe maybe or maybe you tell them what not to do is actually more informative or own it own your own your creative stamp own your music own your promotion own your social media um basically you know take like own your career and some of the, you know, some, like, like a, a really good example of that was a band I signed at Razor and Tie called Starset. And when, you know, the, the, when I got the Starset music, it was fully realized. The songs were great. There was a vibe to it. There was a story behind it. Like, it, 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 you know, like everything was, it, they created their own universe um, and, and, and created it like brilliantly. And when I went to see the band, they had, they had a show that was unlike any, you know, really unlike most bands. There was guys in spacesuits. I did the, not know they wore spacesuits. Uh, there, there's two, there's, there, yeah, like, like the guitar player and the bass player wear these sort of like crazy pressure suits um, with welding, with basically welding masks modified to look like helmets. Um, and it doesn't look cheesy. That's the crazy thing. Well, that's the thing. I I hear that, and I'm picturing something cheesy. So I have to look this up. It, it, yeah, I mean, this and, and and that's a band that like they own their career. Um, uh, Dustin, the singer and um, main, you know the sort of main guy in the band, made made special effort to basically you know create a sonic you know create a sonic landscape, and create a show. And create something that was completely distinct that grab you know that, that grabbed your attention, and 
that's why they became one of the biggest um, new rock bands, uh, you know, in in America, and they now they now have a career. Other examples like their website looked you know looked like their website which they created um, had its own feel had its own had its own visuals had its own story. Basically, you know, the, the great thing about that band is they didn't let others do it for them. They, they did it themselves and they did it to the highest, you know, to the highest quality that they could afford. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's, that's a prime example of, you know, walk it, talk it and own it. And, you know, and, and realize that you're, you're there to make great music, to provide a show, to entertain people and to give to give somebody a very legitimate reason to shell out you know x amount for a physical record which is becoming less and less the case uh pay for pay for a download of the record or simply stream simply stream the record but also also just as importantly um go and and, and fork you know plunk down your 20 bucks to go see the band live maybe you'll even buy a t-shirt so when you see a band like that and the way I feel like you describe them as being somewhat fully formed mm-hmm. as and and not only from a musical standpoint, but the way they're putting out their image, all their aspects of their business. But what what about when you encounter a band who maybe they're not fully formed and they and they and they have they're kind of you see all the, the stuff, but you're like, hey, then maybe they, they don't totally have the image right. And maybe the the songs aren't like maybe they're like eighty percent there, but they just need some development, or or they or they have all that stuff, but they're not well managed, and they don't have a great website, or you know things like that. Show me you mean it. Show me show me that you're gonna put on the best show. You're gonna put on the best show you physically can. You're gonna make the best music you physically can. You're gonna you're gonna your demo is is. You know the highest quality for the you know for the kind of music that you're making. Yeah. Um, you know you're 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 working your you know again you're you're working your social media you're connecting with fans, and you're doing all the work on on your way to being a great band. You know, just show me you know show me you mean it. Um. And I think you know I, I mean we we've seen we throughout the years I mean we've seen many bands. No band starts out perfectly. Right. I mean, Kill, for, Kill Switch Engage was a perfect example of a band that, like, maybe everything wasn't firing on all cylinders the first time I saw them, and there was still. I'm going to interrupt you real quick. Did yeah. you were you at the River City Rampage show in Nork? Yes, I was. And they o- and they, they, they opened, first. yeah. And there was like what fifty people there in, yep. in a stadium. <laughs> yep, and 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 they weren't. They did. They did not sound great. No, no, but there was, but there was, a, the, the songs were still kind of crushing, and because I mean they played all the all the songs off that you know number days fixation of the darkness. Did they? Yeah, the, the, um, or at least I, I believe. I'm saying I'm not saying you're not yeah. you're you're wrong. I just they, don't they, remember. They definitely they definitely played all the all the stuff off the Ferret record. Were they signed to that? Because that that yeah. was. Yeah, they were they were signed at that point. One, the yep. summer of two thousand one. Yep, they were signed. They, they were they were freshly signed at that point. Okay. And they, you know, as as imperfect as they were, and 
occasionally as awkward as they were, there was still a, there was still a vibe and a spirit and you know a great a great songwriting sense and just a a a thing that they put across that was uniquely theirs. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think about that sometimes when maybe all right. Let's say we're a band and we're pretty good, mm-hmm. but then you get signed by someone like Roadrunner and then you get a good manager and then you get a good booking agent in some ways is that almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that that gives you the confidence to become a great band yeah I mean it's almost like one thing feeds the other like if that band never would have gotten all those other opportunities they wouldn't be the great live band they are today and have that confidence and be able to exert themselves because some bands and you've I've noticed this with some European bands especially, where they're great studio bands, like a, a band like Scar Symmetry, for example. Which oh, that's, was, a, that's a good example. Who, who was primarily a studio band, and I would go and watch like live footage. i still never seen them, unfortunately. But you'd watch live footage, and it was a little weird. It was a little, it's they a little stiff. It's a little Yeah, they like... didn't really, but it's not their fault. They just haven't got their reps in, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you got to go out and get your reps, you got to do your 10,000 hours, as it were. Like, to me, I'll give an example. Like, to me, an example would be Periphery, a studio band that was a studio band mm-hmm. that had to figure out how to translate these things they had done so amazingly on, on a record, which is a record is a controlled environment. Okay. And then you go live, and you're dealing every day with a different harder to wrangle in environment and trying to translate that there's a learning curve and I think their learning curve took years like well yep. until their their second or, or third record where literally every time I've seen them they sound better every time I see them their their performance is a lot more magnetic and the confidence just grows so well, I mean here like, like I think a really good example of that is a band like say in this moment who you know they, they started off as basically a female-fronted metalcore band with some pretty good songs. And it took, you know, four albums for them to fully realize who they were. But every record they kept pushing forward. Every yeah. every record it was like, you know, different songs, better songs, um, more fully realized. And they, you know, they simply, they did the work. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, there's, if there's a singular piece of advice I can give, it's, it's literally... Just do the work. Um, n- nobody, n- nobody is gonna, nobody's gonna do it for you, um, and 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 n- nobody can want it more than you. Yeah. And as and as an A&R person, I mean, you know, we we occasionally do get, you know, we occasionally do get in those those situations where I'm I'm you know, where you start to feel like God, I'm, I feel like I'm pulling you know harder than some of the band members. Yeah. And that, you, yeah, you never want to be in that situation. You never want to be in that situation. I mean, over over you know over the twenty three years I've done A and R, um, you know that's happened. That's probably happened a couple times, and it it never it never ends up well. Like like you need you need partners. You know, what I mean, you need people who are going to, you know, if, if you're going to be if you're going to be the coach, they're going to run as hard as they can down the field. You know, I I have a a good kind of situation that's very similar to that but it wasn't with our label it was actually with our ex-manager Dave Cienso the Rev where after we did Determination 
there was a lot of questioning, soul searching, like, is this, because, you know, I think my point of view at the time, maybe some of us as well was, is it worth doing if we can't be X thing? If it, if, if it can't be at a certain level, and this was at the time when Shadows Fall and Lamb of God were getting played on MTV and their careers were exploding and we're like, and I remember our manager, he pretty much, he had more faith in us than we had in ourselves at that point. And it helped us get through and then eventually our confidence and and enthusiasm rebounded but sometimes you do need that per, that pep talk you know yeah. you you need i mean look part of part of our our gig as well is to is to be that sort of galvanizing motiv- motivating dude or dudette um who's going you know who's going to basically help help the artist realize not only who they are but what they can be and yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's hours of conversation um, and really getting to you know getting to know the artist well. Um, sometimes it's a terse, you know, tough love kind of conversation, you know, tough love kind of phone call as well. And you just, you know, your 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 gig is 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 to get the best out of the artist. And um, I think you know I, I think that the best you know the best managers, the best A and R people. Um, you know the best sort of support. You know the, the best sort of support staff. Um, create you know create an atmosphere for success, and that can be the success of, of the the business of the band. Uh, that can be creative success. That can be personal success. And uh, yeah, that's that's the job. Well, I think that just about puts a bow on it. You heard it here first. Get your shit together, people. Yeah. You know the words.
So after all that kill switch engage talk, I figured I should I should play a little bit of of that. That was a live version of Numbered Days from the Disarm the Descent special edition. If you bought the record like I did, god damn it. Anyway, really want to thank Mike for coming on here. Uh, that guy's really busy. He he works a lot. He has actual responsibilities, unlike people like me. So, you know, with him taking his time and giving us that insight was amazing. I really, really enjoyed that. And I thought there's a lot of valuable stuff in there. So other industry types, you know, you, you want to get out of here and, and spread the word about what you're doing. Hit me up. And just want to thank all you guys. The show's doing great. The last couple episodes of really been picking up and getting a lot more uh attention and people are hitting me up saying how much they're really enjoying it so this is awesome it's a lot of fun so we're closing on the end end of the year i don't know how soon i'm gonna get the next one up you know i know you guys are busy you're doing stuff you're drinking eggnog and shit and hanging around uh yule logs and i don't know you're doing stuff you're busy you know so i don't want to crowd you too much with uh dot coil podcast but I'm going home for the holidays. I'm going to try and get some people out on the East Coast that are a little bit harder to get over here. Like I said, I like to do them in person. Not the biggest fan of doing them over Skype or phone, even though I will if I have to. So also head over to iTunes. Give me a rating. Give me a comment. Even if you think I'm whack, you know, just just go out of your way to be like, yo, motherfucker, you're corny. One star or no stars. All right. Stop. You know, if you want to do that. That'll at least help my rankings and then your boy be on the charts and, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to make it out here. Anyway, everyone, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Merry New Year, all that shit. Mamba out. radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.